Welcome to the NEPA Project, a monthly podcast discussing NEPA and other environmental topics. In this episode, we will discuss 10 tips for NEPA success. This episode is brought to you by the Shipley Group's Bundled Courses. Bundled Courses provides effective and efficient live virtual training for a team with diverse training needs. With our bundled courses, you purchase 15 days of training for the price of 10 or 25 days of training for the price of 17. You can share these training days among your staff and they will never expire. If you have any end of year funds, this is a great option. For more information, go to shipthegroup.com. The guests on this episode will be Judy Kurtzman and Ray Solomon. Judy Kurtzman worked for Utah State University and the Quinney College of Natural Resources for over 15 years. While at the university, she taught courses on NEPA and other environmental laws for undergraduate and graduate level students and administered the NEPA certificate program offered in partnership between Utah State and the Shipley Group. During the last 12 years, she has also taught for the Shipley Group. Ray Solomon retired from the Forest Service in 2003 after 32 years of government service and is now an independent environmental consultant. Ray served as the Deputy Director of Ecosystem Management in the Washington office before retirement. Let's get to the conversation. What we're here to talk about today are what we call the 10 tips in the NEPA success. And let me just quickly go through those 10 points and then we'll come back and deal with each uh, very specifically. The first is, is the need for action compelling? That's the first one. The second is, is are your action and actions uh, specific? Uh, so one understands what you're doing, including connected actions. Number three are, are your issues that are derived from those actions tied to the actions. So there's a direct cause effect link. Number four is, as you modify your action, is it clear how you've modified that in response to the issues? Number five, are all your reasonable alternatives identified and dealt with? Number six, uh, are those alternative actions and their effects compared in a succinct, uh, direct way? Number seven, are the methods of analysis transparent and supported by appropriate science? Number eight, are your assumptions that were made clear? And have you dealt with the unknown factors and weaknesses in your methodology? Number nine, can you show how you've consulted with other agencies and particularly the public in uh, arriving at your analysis and decision making? And number 10, is everything documented in the record? So with that, Judy, I'm going to turn it to you for the first item. Okay. So the first item is determining whether or not the need for the action is compelling. In other words, is this a good, a good project or a good policy that we're implementing? And the best way to make that determination, Ray, I think, is through brainstorming. I don't, I don't think it's a good idea for one person to sit down and basically write up a purpose and need statement explaining the importance of the project, that it requires a number of different perspectives for developing a really good purpose and need statement that determines whether or not this 
action is really compelling or whether we really need to move forward on this or not. And the interdisciplinary team can provide that since they are coming at it from different perspectives, different disciplines, and identifying different issues. Yeah, I also asked them to take a look at how your detractors, how would your detractors define this problem from their perspective? And that often gives you a different lens to look at the project rather than the very narrow lens that an agency typically looks at your projects. Absolutely. It also gives you the perspective of the public that's most likely to, as you said, be the distractors, but fight you on it so that before you even move into the area of going forward with the action, you're well aware of what some of the contrary ideas are going to be. Yeah, and as, as some practitioners do, they will actually take some of those other perspectives and they separate out the need from the purposes, uh, and some call those purposes objectives, and actually frame a, an objective or a purpose that uh, emphasize that other perspective. Which I think is a really good idea. Yeah. So you've addressed it before before people have even had a chance to criticize you for it. And you have not only addressed it, but you've addressed it hopefully in a way that will reduce their concerns. Yeah, I, and I think that's the essence of, of why you try to define that scope. So uh, it then directs the rest of the analysis. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So really getting that purpose and need statement defined and thought through deeply and from different perspectives is going to help ensure that the entire NEPA process and the documentation and analysis that are required will be well-structured and hopefully well-focused. Yes, I agree with that. Assuming that is properly defined, then, then the next item is to look at specifically what is the action that you are, actions that you are proposing, which of course uh, includes connected actions. And I, I find practitioners tend to define those actions too broadly. I tell them, I want to know who's proposing it, where it's being done, what's being done, how it's being done, and when it's being done. And that often, I find, causes real difficulties for people to understand that not all of your proposed actions are taking place at the same time or the same place. And so you need to be more site-specific in describing those so that when you do the effects analysis, your subject matter experts know specifically where the effects are going to occur because you properly defined where the actions are going to occur and when they're going to occur. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. And and one of the things, um, well, there's two things, actually. What do you think about similar actions, right? It, it seems to me that it, that's a little bit of a murky area 
And the courts have kind of come out with different perspectives on it. And I think there's some confusion. And for me, there's some confusion related to what the courts have said, because in one instance, both instances were timber harvest. And in one instance, the court said, because they're happening in the same watershed, they're happening within 18 months of each other, there's similar actions. And rather than doing three EAs, you should do one document and, and analyze them together. Another court said, we need to defer to the agency, even though these are three timber harvests within the same watershed, within a two-year period, and they'll all be using the same method of harvest, we need to defer to the agency to determine whether they should be doing one document or three documents. So what's your thoughts on that? I always tell folks when you're looking at, at whether you're going to combine similar actions like timber sales or oil development or pipelines, whatever, that I always tell them you need to take a look at is the environment that encompasses that large geography, because you typically have expanded that geography, is the environment or the ecosystems, are they similar? Are your vegetation types similar? Are your soils similar? Are your water responses similar? Does your public, is your public on board with looking at a larger geographical scale? Do you have the technical data and information at the small scale that you can aggregate up uh, in order to look at that larger scale? So I think there's a lot of factors that not only does the agency need to look at, but I think the agency needs to describe why they believe they can expand that geographical scope as they expand the scope of the projects and maintain the site specificity of analysis. Or vice versa. I think they need to give their rationale if they're not going to do it at the larger area. Um, and you make really good points there because if we are looking at different ecosystems, then analyzing that all together would become a bit of a nightmare. And the pendulum has swung back and forth on this over the last probably 30 years where agencies, particularly land management agencies, for the sake of trying to make their analysis more efficient, have uh, looked at larger landscapes as uh, multiple projects. And when they do so, their analysts then tend to not write the environmental effects to the same level of specificity. They write them very generally, and then they find the courts will say, well, that's you've written it at a program level rather than at a project level, and therefore you lose. Right. I know, you know, the connected actions are pretty self-explanatory, but it's those similar actions that I think agencies need to think about when they are writing up their purpose and need statement. Um, and, and I agree with you 100%, giving your rationale as to, and maybe not in your purpose and need statement, maybe in your cumulative impact um, assessment as to why you've divided thinking projects into different environments assessments or environmental impact statements. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And so then once you've got once you've got the your your purpose and need and you've got this project well defined, then we can move to the to the third tip, which is uh, what what problems does that project now create for you? What are those issues that result from you taking the action that you have now described? And I find that practitioners often immediately just brainstorm an issue without really thinking about what is the causative mechanism of the action that leads to that effect. Because if you don't do that, if you then come back and want to apply mitigation measures or another alternative, you have to interrupt that cause-effect chain of the action leading to an effect uh, in order to show how effective your mitigation measure is. And sometimes I see these issues, one, being defined very broadly, but more importantly, they're not described in a way that shows the action results in this kind of uh, uh, intermediate effect, which then ends up creating this unacceptable endpoint that we now are going to have to mitigate. And I think it's really important in the issue statements that one draws that link between the causative action and the endpoint effect that they're really concerned about. And are you thinking that that needs to be done then in Chapter 2, when they're defining their proposed action and other alternatives and the specificity in which they define them? You know, you bring up an excellent point, and, and I see it done in, in one of two places, either uh, at the end of the purpose and need section, where they typically talk about public involvement, uh, and, and as, a, as a result of that, then they derive their issues. I've seen it done there, or it can be done at the very beginning in the alternative section in describing how you develop the alternatives. And, and as I tell practitioners, I personally don't care where it is as long as you can tell your story and you make the transition from the purpose and needs section into the alternative section. Yes, absolutely. And normally I I recommend also that it go in chapter 1 at the uh, at the end of chapter 1 the list of these other relevant issues we've determined will be carried through and then here are the non-relevant issues and here's how we've come to the conclusion they're non-relevant. One of the, my concerns I have often seen in chapter 1 a proposed action you know, the, the title proposed action and then a description of the proposed action in chapter one, which should never happen because it's an alternative. And now you've, you've narrowed your purpose and need to one alternative and you've eliminated the ability for other alternatives to meet that purpose and need because it is so narrow. So how do you avoid doing that? Well, again, if, if it, the way I do it is if, if I'm running into that issue, I bring that discussion into the beginning of the alternative section, and I actually have a subsection that I label 
development of alternatives. And that's where I then take my proposal and say, here are the issues that are derived from that proposal. And here's how we have taken the issues and formulated other equally viable alternatives. Um, mm -hmm. So again, I tell my story uh, by showing how I started with the proposal, but now that led me to these issues that caused me to look at another broad array of alternatives. So the alternatives aren't so much, let's brainstorm, they're more driven by the environmental, and I include social and economic in that package, they are driven by the issues that are created by my proposal. Because if I don't have issues, I'm not going to go create alternatives for the sake of creating alternatives. That's a really inefficient way to do analysis. <laughs> I agree completely. Which does kind of then lead us into number four, because as you just said, the... Um, a lot of times the differences between alternatives are the mitigation measures addressing the issues and mitigation measures that need to be analyzed even if they're not part of an alternative as required by 1502.1 for the CEP regs. So that decision makers and the public have an opportunity to see uh, what mitigation measures would be possible and available to avoid, reduce, rectify, et cetera, those issues. That leads me to the, the idea of, of what I call mitigating. Uh, and it's one of my pet peeves in, in subject matter experts is that, not to be picking on wildlife biologists in particular, but, but I find what they'll do is you'll have an alternative that's got a number of issues and they'll throw everything in the kitchen sink at it uh, and you got 30 mitigation measures, and they can never tell you how effective are those individual mitigation measures going to be. It just drives me nuts that if one's going to put a mitigation measure associated with some unacceptable environmental consequence, you ought to be able to tell me two things. How much is it going to cost? And what is the incremental benefit to the environment by adding that mitigation measure. And I think by doing that, you force your subject matter experts to really be thinking about the effectiveness and the efficiency of mitigations that they're going to require the agency to implement. Yes, I agree. And, and what you often will see is, well, we've got best management practices and we will implement those. So just trust us on that. <laughs> and and we're not going to list what they are, but there's 45 of them in Appendix in Appendix E, and we'll be implementing the ones appropriate, but we don't know which ones they're implementing. And it's a big trust us statement, which is also one of my pet peeves. Absolutely. And, and, and what, what bothers me about that is that then every subject matter expert that's on your team makes different assumptions about which mitigation measures are actually going to be applied. And it, it then makes the analysis subject to an individual subject matter expert's interpretation rather than the whole team being in sync on what those mitigation measures are. Exactly. Exactly. There are situations where 
you know, the differences between the alternatives is one has mitigation measures in it and another might not or might have fewer. But I agree with you just saying we're just going to throw all these mitigation measures in, just trust us, it'll all be okay. And then, and then not really necessarily even seeing them analyzed or seeing them analyzed under different perspectives depending upon the subject matter experts. Yeah, which then, then takes us right into the, the fifth one, which is this, the development of the alternatives uh, and looking at those reasonable alternatives that I find another failing is agencies don't take credit for some of those alternatives and mitigation measures that they have considered, but then decided that for one reason or another, are not going to be used or applied either as an alternative or as a mitigation measure. And those, you get credit for that if you can show you've talked about it. So I always look for a section in documents, EAs as well, that are alternatives considered but dismissed from detailed consideration. And I often find that's left out. And it is part of the CEQ regulations. Again, 1502.14 say, talk about the alternatives you considered and eliminated and why you eliminated them. And that's especially helpful if you only have one action alternative. There, you know, there's this idea that, um, and, and I, I, I don't want to pick on the lawyers, but there's this legal idea that there has to be at least two action alternatives and the no action alternatives. And some agencies, as a result of that, will put in these fake alternatives that are very obviously fake alternatives and they're not, you can tell they're not honestly being considered because they don't either meet the purpose and need very well or there's something about them that it's, they're not well described, they're not well developed. and. Um, there goes the credibility for the document because chapter two has fake alternatives in it. And I think that's harmful. So I agree with you. If you only have one, just describe the ones that you did consider and then eliminate it. And then why you, this is the best, you know, the best you can do. Yeah. And, and uh, again, this goes back to, to that string of the issues that, if you have a, a robust list of issues, uh, it would follow that you should have a, a greater number of alternatives. If you don't have a whole lot of issues, then you shouldn't have, you shouldn't go out and just create these false alternatives for the sake of creating alternatives. That uh, Again, you, you should be able to narrow that down as you go. Right, exactly. And the, it becomes a, a lot less pre-decisional. If you've done that explanate that explaining, given people, as you mentioned, the story behind behind it, so that they understand how you came to the alternatives you did look at, or why you only have one alternative or one action alternative. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know we we're saying kind of that brings us to our to our sixth point, which is. This idea of the comparison of the alternatives. Uh, yeah, this is another failing, and I don't know why it's such a failing that many practitioners assume that 
the environmental effects and the comparison of those effects should be done in the effects section of the document. And, and although the rationale for those effects are in the effects section, the actual comparison of those effects should be brought right up front in the alternative section. It's called the heart of the environmental document, and it should sharply contrast the merits of the alternatives. Well, the only way you can do that is by having some display, whether it's tables, diagrams, graphs, whatever they are, to sharply contrast the merits of the alternatives. And I find that consistently lacking in the alternative section. Your thoughts on I that? I do, too. Yeah, I agree. And I I talk to agencies about that, and they say, oh, well, we do that in at the end of Chapter 4 because it makes more sense because now you've, you know, discussed all of these impacts. And my recommendation to them is move it into Chapter 2, where it's right behind the alternatives. First of all, that can then serve the Chapter 1 and 2 sort of serve as this executive summary that decision maker and the public can can review and they don't need to read chapters three and four unless they want to get into the technical aspects of it. Everything is in chapter one and two with that. And and I prefer a matrix, but I can see where you could do it with the diagram as well. You know, but showing here here's here's the uh here's the current you know, here are the resources, here's the current condition of them. Here's how they change under no action. Uh, here's how they change under alternative B, alternative C, whatever. And if you put it at the in chapter four, for a lot of people, they'll never get to the end. They'll never see it <laughs> at the end of chapter four. Well, that's right. Uh, what, what, what I what I tell folks uh, when I'm doing uh, reviewing documents, I say take take the alternatives chapter out as a separate entity. Could your decision maker make a decision based on what's in chapter two? And if they can't, you don't have what should be in chapter two. I like that. I've not thought about that, but I like that a lot, right? Which then, uh, assuming that we've got, you know, our alternatives all done and we've got all that, then, then of course, you're, we move into number seven, which you may want to talk about that on the methods. Okay. I, I do want to say one more thing about the alternative section though before we move on, and that is to you know really encourage people to take a look at how they've defined the alternatives and to see if it's obvious which is going to be the preferred alternative because of how well it's developed or because of it's four pages long and the other two are a half a page each or whatever the case may be. Just take a look and see if you were looking at this from the outside. Does it feel like the decision's already made before you even move beyond that? So moving into chapter, or moving then into the chapters three and four and the methods being used. The, um, in the CEQ regs, uh, in section 1502.24, they talk about the methodology and scientific accuracy required for these documents, an EA or an EIS. 
I can honestly say that there are many times I've been reading through a document and I'll read chapter one and it'll be really well written and well developed and I'll read chapter two and it'll be really well written and I'll think, oh, I finally found that EA or that EIS that people have been asking me for that's a really good example. And then I get into chapters three and four and it kind of all falls apart because in chapters three and four, there's no real analysis done. I can't even tell if there's been a site visit by the resource specialist because the information is so vague and there's the information, oftentimes there's no discussion of methods used to determine current conditions. Did you do sampling? Did you do a survey? Did you do a literature review? I, you know, there's no or there's no citations, which to me is an automatic. You didn't take a hard look. You're you're touching on one of my one of my favorite uh, topics, and that is when when I'm working with teams. One of the first things I do is uh, before we jump into everybody looking at their effects for you know fish or social economic whatever it is. I have the whole team construct cause-effect diagrams, starting with the actions and running them all the way to what I call the social endpoint. And that exercise of diagramming that, whether it's through a mind mapping or whether it's through flow charting, there's lots of techniques. But by doing that, you really start forcing your subject matter experts to start documenting their assumptions, understanding where do they make the connection that this action is going to lead to this effect? Where's the research that supports that? Where's the data that supported that? And it forces those discussions to happen, where if you don't do that as a team, then as you say, it starts to fall apart because they haven't described it well in, in that section which describes your methodologies. Because they haven't thought it through really well, like your diagramming forces them to do. It forces them to start thinking at it from the big picture perspective and looking at the direct and the indirect impacts on the various resources, the links between them, and which in turn helps set boundaries for their analysis because they have a better understanding of their direct and indirect impacts for the resources, the ecosystems, and the communities they're affecting. Yeah. And, 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 and go ahead. You, you get specialists that, and I've seen this happen, where, where uh, they draw these connections uh, that to them are intuitively obvious, but to the rest of us they aren't. And, and so they need to explain those interconnected connections that get them to that end point. And it, it drives me nuts when they do that. Well, and especially when it feels like they've now set themselves outside of the team because the team's together because they're all managing that land and all of those resources, ecosystems, and communities are linked together you know, my understanding is NEPA requires us to take that big picture look at 
the ecosystems we're working in and how when we change something in it, it has that domino effect to it. If we're not working together as a team and we're not looking at things from that perspective, the document doesn't really meet its purpose of helping everybody see what does this mean to each of this, these resources, but also what does it mean to this ecosystem as a whole? Yeah, I, I'll ask you the question. Uh, I think you know where I am on this, but how do you feel about combining uh, the effect in environment with the environmental effects, meaning the traditional chapters three and four? Do you, do you encourage combining those or keeping them separate? I encourage combining them. I, I think the flow is much more logical. I think the information from the perspective of the, of the resource specialist writing it I think it makes more sense to them if they're going from here's the current condition to here's how we're changing it. So I really like the combination, regardless of whether it's an EA or an EIS. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I think it also shortens up the document, too. You get less encyclopedic information up front in that environmental, uh, uh, the uh, environmental settings section. And repetition. Yeah. You know, because you don't have to you what you don't have to go back and discuss how that change is occurring because I might have forgotten between chapters three and four after I've read through a whole bunch of that stuff. So I think that it shortens the document of things as well as through the uh, yeah. what you had said, as well as through um ensuring that there's not the encyclopedic, going back to the world was created 4.6 billion years ago. Yeah, you get a lot of that, which, which then, of course, that this whole idea of this, this your methods and the analysis, then I, I often, that takes me to, to point number eight, which is, and I get this feedback all the time, well, Ray, I don't know. I, I don't have the information. I, 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 can't, I, I can't give that to you. Uh, well. Yeah, well, the CEQ regs do provide you where you have unavailable and incomplete information, how to fill those voids. And so I tell them, I say, look, you have an obligation to discuss the evidence, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You got to be honest about it. Uh, tell me what you know. Tell me what you don't know. And then only then can you tell me what you think. You can't just immediately say, here's what I think without exploring. Here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. Now, given that, here's how I can finally make conclusions of what uh, I'm going to conclude in light of all that missing information. Absolutely. Don't forget that last part, too, because <laughs> I've seen the we don't have the information and therefore it is impossible to make predictions, which isn't going to fly in court. Oh, it's not. Uh, should that, and, and, should and, that and, end up being the situation? Absolutely. You, 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 as I tell SMEs, I said, you're not getting paid the big bucks to say we don't know. Right, right. Well, and people are often surprised when I say, you might be surprised, you might be surprised if you do a very thorough literature review, how much information is actually out there. I'm, I'm never, it, it never ceases to amaze me when I start talking about a literature review 
the blank stares that I get. How can we possibly keep up on the literature? And my reaction is because you're a scientist, and that's what scientists do. You're a resource specialist. You should know the most, you know, you should have read the most recent articles about situations for land management or whatever it is that you, you know, part of land management that you're in. You should know the most, you know, the most um, current methods for studying things. That's part of your job as a resource specialist is to stay up on the literature and then to cite it in your documents to show you know both the contradictory information out there and the information that supports your your findings. And, and as I as I emphasize to SMEs, I, I tell them, I say, you don't have to be exact in your estimates. You can bound it. You can say it's an upper bound, here's a lower bound. The, the, the science doesn't allow us to be precise, but we have with some level of confidence somewhere in between. And that's exactly. good as long as you explain why you've done what you've done. And I encourage putting in those variances because we don't have enough information to know exactly what the percent of of that loss of habitat is going to do to populations. Right. But we can give a variance. Yeah, which which then that takes me then to to the the next point, which is this business on consulting agencies uh, and the public. And I know that's an area of interest to you, so I'll let you respond on that. You know, this takes us into point nine, which is about consulting agencies which then provides some level of that of that uh, input to the unknown as well as the public. And I know that's an area that, that you have thoughts on, so I'm going to let you uh, talk to that. Okay. Well, one of the – I'm not sure what they were thinking, but in the CEQ regs, it does state that, that scoping is not required for environmental assessment. But when you think about what scoping is, and it's both, you know, public involvement, but it's much more than that. And how you could suggest for an environmental assessment that you don't need to talk to other federal, state, local, tribal entities that might have regulatory responsibilities over your action or that might have information that you need or who might serve as cooperating agencies seems utterly ridiculous to me. So, of course, you need to do scoping, and of course, you need to do public involvement. And one of the, I think, I think agencies often forget that state agencies and other federal agencies, local and tribal, really do have good information for them that can reduce the amount of effort they have to put into it, because the studies have already been done, and they can just Summarize them and cite them. And um, they, you know, like the NRCS and soils, it, you know, you, you don't have a soil biologist, the NRCS has probably already done the study for you and will tell you what kind of soils you have. So it's incredibly important to me that aspect of public involvement as well as appropriate public involvement from the general public. 
and by general public, I'm referring to the residents, the adjacent landowners, and and other people who care about that particular public land or that public resource. Well, and in particular, uh, given the uh, you know the uh, one federal decision policy uh, coming out of the uh, this administration, it's even more important that your particularly your consulting agencies. Uh, those that you're either getting licenses, permits, or some consultation are are brought into the process early, that you have those good working relationships, and that there are a few surprises that come your way, that you've done that often, and the relationships are built so that you don't have surprises. And that, you know, I know that the uh, Trump administration is really encouraging that, but Honestly, that's something that should have been happening long ago. I mean, you should always be starting the NEPA process as early as possible uh, in order to ensure that, you know, the engineers understand the process and also that you are starting those consultations as soon as you can, like you said, for for developing good relationships and not asking people to always do you a favor and get something done in six weeks. That should take six months. But also um, to ensure your document is not complete until you have all consultations done. And you cannot make a decision until you have all consultations done. So getting them started as early as possible is important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Which which then takes us to the, the last point, which is now that you've done all this work and, and and hopefully the analysis is supported with good science and and you've spent all this effort, in the end I find the way you keep your records, uh you live and die uh if you get litigated uh at all by what's in the record. And I think sometimes uh, your practitioners overlook that just because there's a piece of paper or an email or something that's laying around, that that automatically is going to be used by the court if you get litigated. Well, not necessarily. One has a a duty, if you will, to assure that those documents that are important that you have shown within the NEPA array of documents, be it your appendices, your uh, environmental uh, impact statement or EA, or the decision document or FONSI, that you are aware of those records have relied on those records, and then they become a part of the administrative record if you're litigated. And I think way too often people start gathering up their record after the project is done, and even after they've been litigated. Then they start looking around to find all those documents to help support the decision. Well, that stuff should already have been gathered, put together, and indexed as part of the record before the decision ever gets written. And I find that's another major failing of, of agencies. 
I do too. And if you have ever been in a situation where you have to be the person who starts gathering that information after the fact, you know what a nightmare it is trying to trying to find all the citations in the document because you have to have a copy of all the citations, the the the, the documents you cited in the in your in your EA or EIS and it is an absolute nightmare to try and and do that after the fact. And you rarely have a really good administrative record when you're doing it after the fact. Yeah, I've, uh, uh, as you know, we, we in Shipley have uh, recently, uh, because of demand, have developed now a course on records management just because we found that uh, some of our practitioners have not been diligent in, in knowing how uh, to index and build that record. So uh, even or though what to put in it and points. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And, and I strongly encourage people to take that because even if you don't get litigated, that record serves when you want to go back and say, you know, I cited this. I bet I can't find a copy right now, but I bet there's one in that record. That, you know, so, or or an old environmental assessment, a programmatic document. Even if you're not going to be litigated, those those administrative records or administrative files, whatever an agency wants to call them, are incredibly important for future documents as well as for your current document. Thank you for listening to this episode of the NEPA Project. To view the transcript of this discussion, go to shipleygroup.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions or comments in regards to this episode, or you have any topics or ideas for future episodes, please reach out to Shipley at ShipleyGroup.com. We would love to hear from you. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe on iTunes or anywhere you list the podcasts and share this podcast with your colleagues. This episode was brought to you by the Shipley Group's Bundled Courses. Bundled Courses provides effective and efficient live virtual training for a team with diverse training needs. With our bundled courses, you can purchase 15 days of training for the price of 10 or 25 days of training for the price of 17. You can share these training days among your staff and they never expire. If you have any end-of-year funds, this is a great option. For more information, go to shipthegroup.com. Thank you for listening and remember, NEPA is just good planning and decision-making.